Chapter 20 of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter 20 Some Early Reminiscences. Prairie Fires. Prairie fires used to be the bane of our existence in the early days for the simple reason that we had to put them out. There was no one else in the country to do it. Many of these fires were started by locomotives and the rest, in most cases, by criminal negligence. A careless camper would fail to extinguish his campfire or possibly, after lighting his pipe, would throw the lighted match on the prairie and set fire to the grass. The most furious fire I ever saw occurred in the month of February, 1889. In the course of the forenoon, I noticed a column of smoke arise from the valley of the St. Mary's River at a point about seven miles distant from Lethbridge and sent a constable to see what it was. Our herd of horses were at pasture in charge of a constable in the same valley at a point to the eastward of the smoke and I was apprehensive of their safety in case a wind should spring up. Within an hour of my constable's departure, the wind rose from a gentle breeze to a furious gale. It blew from the west in the direct line of our horses. It was about twelve miles to where our camp was, and Sergeant Ross and I galloped out, but the fire crossed our path like a flash. It was a beautiful grazing country, with long grass known as bunch grass, and this made the fire burn more fiercely. A bunch of grass would be lighted at the roots. The wind would catch it up, all blazing as it was, and carry it fifty or sixty feet at a leap. There it would set fire to another bunch, which would be similarly caught up and flung ahead, to repeat the same process. Long before we could reach our herd, the fire had passed away out of sight, and when we came to the horses, we found them bunched up together behind a mound or butt, which was blackened on the windward side, but green on the lee side. Here there was a little pear-shaped patch of grass, just big enough to contain the herd, and it looked as if they had had the sense to shelter themselves there. The constable in charge was busy saving the house, etc., of a settler who was away from home, and he arrived just in time to do so. As the feed was gone, we had to take all our horses into barracks and to feed them with hay. Another instance, which occurred in April of the same year, is a notable illustration of the difficulty in judging the distance of a prairie fire. Mr. Howell Harris, the manager of the Conrad Brothers and I.G. Baker's ranches, came to me one evening and asked for assistance to put out a large fire, supposed to be from 12 to 15 miles north of us, which was threatening his range. It certainly was a very alarming fire to look at, as there was a line of flame which extended over a great many miles. I happened to be very short of men just then, but went myself with a party of nine, taking with us a wagon, oats, canned corned beef, and some tea, etc. We had first to find a ford across the Belly River, then to climb the opposite bank upon a road of our own making, and next we headed straight for the center of the line of fire. We left barracks at eight o'clock in the evening and traveled until three o'clock next morning. We seemed then to be just as far from the fire as when we started but were fortunate enough to find some water, so we halted for an hour to rest and to feed the horses. Then, as we were not rationed for a lengthy trip, 
and as there was great uncertainty about the supply of water, I decided to go home. We reached the Belly River at eleven o'clock, and rode into barracks just as the people were sitting down to their midday meal. We afterwards found that the fire was burning in an arc, and that the centre was really further from us than either end. We must have travelled over fifty miles. As we neared our journey's end, the wind gradually freshened, and after two days of such encouragement, the fire came within striking distance. It was then, credibly said, to be within seven or eight miles, and I went out again with another party at 9 p.m. In spite of the distance, as estimated, we had to ride 15 miles before we reached it, and by the time we had put it all out, it was 5.30 a.m. We reached home, having travelled nearly 40 miles. These fires were for the most part extinguished by means of gunny sacks, the business ends of which were saturated with water, and with these the fire was flogged out. Old brooms, too much worn for prolonged household work, were very useful too, and we used to preserve our old brooms for the purpose. The wetting of the sacks necessitated a supply of water, and thus a barrel of water was carried in a wagon, so that process could not be very rapid. It was a happy time when the settlers had become so numerous that our duty was mainly limited to warning them to turn out and fight any fire in their own vicinity. Suppressing Illicit Liquor Traffic No history of mounted police work would be worth its salt unless it could give some instances of the manner in which the law prohibiting illicit liquor was enforced in the early days. During the first half of the year, 1889, we paid particular attention to the unlawful importation of the poison that had been in the habit of coming into the country from Montana. There was no railway in that section connecting the two countries, and the liquor must, perforce, travel by wagon or by pack-horse. Yet for a man who understood how to carry it on, the illicit trade was the most profitable business in the country. The stuff itself was known as forty-rod, red-eye, rot-gut, and other similarly expressive names, and it was invariably of overproof strength, so that it might be doctored by the retail vendor. In most cases, it was little other than coloured alcohol. In December 1888, Staff Sergeant Ross received information that about 100 gallons of this stuff was cached on the prairie a few miles to the south of the town of Lethbridge, and, after a diligent search, found them. He was unable at the moment to provide transport for more than 30 gallons, which he brought into barracks, and being assured that if he left the balance where it was, he would see it again no more, he broke up the rest of the kegs and let the liquor run out on the prairie. It was a provision of the law that seized liquor could be so disposed of. We were never able to prove ownership, so the other 30 gallons went the same way, killing the weeds upon a barrack road. I had occasion to remember this find, for just at that time my groom came to me and said that my team was a little above itself and wanted more exercise than it had been getting lately. Would it not be a good plan to take them for a ten-mile run into the country to steady them down? I did not want the horses that afternoon and told him to do as he proposed, dismissing the subject from my mind. I learnt some little time afterward that the owners of the hundred gallons previously referred to 
had lost a ten-gallon keg of so-called brandy which had fallen off the load and my enterprising groom in some way came to hear of where it could be found by means of my team and a buckboard he recovered the keg and sold it for a good round sum putting the money of course into his own pocket i discovered subsequently what a thorough-paced blackguard he was in this way my trooper which had been bought for the force in ontario in 1885 was a well-blooded golden chestnut bred as i understood in kentucky he had been used on a trotting race course and his paces were quite unsuited to the saddle i had ridden him with lord lansdowne's escort in 1885 and again with lord stanley in 1889 and on the latter occasion one of the staff asked me when my old friend was playing the kitten whether he was a young horse i could only reply i wish he were he was aged when he was bought and could not be expected to last for many years longer well i had taken a great fancy to the horse and allowed no one to ride him besides myself and my young son percy who was one of the best riders in the country after many months of labour i had taught the old horse to canter quite pleasantly and had always been very careful of his mouth he showed his breeding in so many ways no matter how long the day or how tedious the road he had always a spare leg to fall back upon and one day i had occasion to cross the st mary's river when the flow ice was floating down and wasn't quite sure how the horse might take it having never seen it before he just cocked his ears and looked at it and passed through without a second thought my groom as it transpired resented not being allowed to ride the horse and one day i received forwarded from the commissioner at regina a very badly written ill-spelt letter in which he was informed that if he knew how percy dean was permitted to ride his father's horse he would not allow it not very long after this it happened that my groom wanted a night pass wrote it out himself and brought to me to sign i at once recognized the writing as being identical with that of the anonymous letter and sent both documents to the commissioner with the suggestion that my groom should be at once transferred to some northern division which was done he was subsequently sent to the penitentiary for burglary the two following instances are good illustrations of the manner in which the detachments used to watch the illicit liquor dealers sergeant a e macdonnell of milk river ridge detachment about fourteen miles from the international boundary was quite well aware that an old-time whisky smuggler named tom purcell had a cargo of liquor in the proximity of the line on the montana side which he was intending to run in whenever opportunity might offer the fourth of july american independence day was approaching and it could hardly be celebrated in gala fashion without a little stimulant so on the evening of the second tom decided to make his venture at seven o'clock that evening sergeant macdonnell started out on patrol came across a fresh wagon track followed it up and overtook purcell who had six five-gallon kegs of fire-water in his wagon macdonnell escorted the outfit to lethbridge where purcell paid one hundred dollar fine and where his wagon horses and harnesses were seized confiscated and sold by the customs department sergeant macdonnell was the richer by fifty dollars as half the fine was payable to him as informer 
During the same month, I had sent out a working party from barracks to construct a bridge over a bad hole in the Fort Benton Trail, which our teams carrying supplies had to cross. It was about halfway between barracks and the Milk Ridge Detachment, that is, at a distance of about 30 miles. About 25 miles to the west of where this party was working, a detachment was stationed on the St. Mary's River. This detachment was provided with a pack outfit so that it could act as a flying patrol and by means of its pack horses carry its own small A-tent, grub, etc. for a few days. The detachment was commanded by a live young corporal named Elliot, who never left anything to chance. Corporal Elliot, in the course of his patrol, came across wagon tracks and, on general principles, followed them. The country at that time was overspread with smoke from bushfires in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and the surrounding view was accordingly very limited. At a particular spot on the trail, Elliot noticed that the tracks of the wagon ahead of him grew rapidly fainter and fainter, and he reasoned from this that the load in the wagon had, for some reason or other, become decreased. On investigation, he found that five ten-gallon kegs of whiskey were reposing at the bottom of a bank, down which they had been rolled out of sight from the trail. He went on his way, rejoicing, and rode into our bridge-building camp, where he found a noted whiskey-runner named Red McConnell, with horses and an empty wagon. McConnell, who was familiarly known to his confreres as Reddy, had had a long and merry life at his trade, and had never yet been caught. They all had supper together, of course, and after supper McConnell hitched up his team and drove off into the smoke. Corporal Elliot went back to the kegs and watched them all night. Bright and early, next morning, Red McConnell returned also to his kegs and began to move them to a more convenient and accessible spot. Elliot allowed him to remove one and held him up with the second in his arms. The poor man was helpless. Nothing could be done except to obey the command to load the kegs into his own wagon and to drive them into Lethbridge and pay the $100 fine which was extracted from him. After this experience, Red McConnell did not again operate in my district. The Animals' Contagious Disease Act Among our multifarious other duties, we were called upon to enforce the provisions of this act, and a great deal of work it caused us from time to time, until at length the Dominion Veterinary Department took over and performed its own duties, some years subsequent to the time of which I am now writing. At the parliamentary session of 1897, the disease commonly known to stockmen as big jaw or lumpy jaw, and to the veterinary profession as actinomycosis, was added to the list of those scheduled in the Animals' Contagious Disease Act. This complaint was very prevalent on the range, and it was contrary to the new law for an owner to dispose of an animal suffering therefrom. In October of that year, some 500 head of cattle were shipped from Lethbridge in two trains to Hochelaga. Complaint was made to me by a local stockman that nine head of big-jawed steers were included in this consignment, and that they were all loaded into one car, together with nine cows. This car was the leading car of the train, and it was destined to carry its freight to the cannery. 
the stockman who brought the complaint to me had been incited thereto by some of the men who had helped to load the cattle and it was said that the nine steers were suffering from a very advanced stage of the disease the lumps on the jaws all had burst and the sores were exuding matter and blood and it seemed to be a very exaggerated case as the trains carrying the cattle had left before the complaint was made it was fortunate that an inspector of brands was present as he could and did give excellent independent testimony as to the condition of the suffering animals being an appointee under northwest ordinance only he held no authority to interfere under the contagious diseases act which was a dominion statute but his attention was drawn to the facts and he took his own notes the case was tried summarily before an associate justice of the peace and myself a charge being laid against one of the shippers to whom three of the steers were said to have belonged that he had disposed of the said animals knowing that they were suffering from an infectious disease oddly enough no one would obviously they could if they would explain how it happened that the nine diseased animals foregathered in one particular pen it seemed to be a remarkable instance of animal sagacity with a small effort of the imagination one could imagine these poor suffering creatures calling aloud in their bovine language unclean unclean singling themselves out from the maddening crowd and with self-sacrificing resignation placing themselves on board the first car to hasten to the cannery i asked one witness how the cowboys had in the course of conversation between themselves and the shippers alluded to the diseased animals and he replied them with the wattles but not a solitary member of the combination would admit driving or seeing anyone else drive the infected steers into the number one pen it did not matter the charge was proved beyond a shadow of doubt and the defendant was ordered to pay a fine of one hundred dollars he gave notice of appeal and as mr coney bear was acting for him i had to request that some counsel should be appointed to uphold the conviction the crown prosecutor of another judicial district was instructed to attend to this duty he duly arrived in lethbridge in the month of march following and the case was heard by mr justice scott i looked up the learned counsel on his arrival told him that all the witnesses were present and so on and that he had a perfectly straight case to handle and felt not a little surprise when he intimated that the sitting magistrates had taken considerably more evidence than was necessary to a conviction i did not concede that point but said nothing as i had had no experience then of his capacity as counsel when the trial came on it was of course incumbent upon him to prove his case de novo and i was literally staggered when after he had perfunctorily examined a couple of witnesses he said that's the case for the crown my lord so much had been left undone that when mr coney bear rose and said to the judge i submit my lord that there is no case for my client to answer the judge simply queried you don't expect me to uphold the conviction upon such evidence as that mr blank do you the man had no answer whatever to make the appellant whom he was paid twenty-five dollars a day to convict was a stalwart of the liberal party 
which had been returned to power a couple of years previously, and the inference was irresistible that, in contemptuous disregard of his reputation as a professional man and of his obligations as a man of honour, he had deliberately wrecked the case for the Crown in the interests of a political partisan. End of chapter 20 and end of Mounted Police Life in Canada. Recording by Esther.